Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, we read, Bondservants, which you should know the word there in Greek is doulos, and it only and always refers to slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, slave, or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality within him. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and completely infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see your wisdom this morning. Help us to understand what your word says so that we can be bold in our appreciation of it and our declaration of the same. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In assessing the moral wisdom of the Bible, writes New Atheist author Sam Harris, it is useful to consider moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. Consult the Bible, and you will find that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. Is that true? Is Sam Harris right? Does God just expect it to be normal for slavery to exist in our world? Were all the slave masters in the antebellum South right to use the Bible as a tool for keeping their African-American slaves under lock and key? Well, the answer to these questions is an obvious and an emphatic no. He is not correct. That is not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. But before I explain more, I need to give a couple of caveats. Uh, Number one, uh, this morning's sermon is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. You should know that it kills me inside that I kind of have to do this. I would rather just stand up here and preach and let God's word kind of speak for itself. But the fact is, I, as your pastor, cannot only exegete the text, I also have to exegete the world in which we live. And the world in which we live is, a, is a, our shared historical context is that here in America, we had a system of slavery that now everyone agrees is evil. So in order to help us understand what Paul means in, in these verses, I kind of have to deal with that reality first. And so I have to answer this question, does the Bible support slavery? In order to do that, I just kind of have to take us through the Bible and I have to talk about a lot of historical facts and I'm going to actually be using PowerPoints. You should know that it's, it's literally killing me. I'm, I'm literally dying as I stand here before you to have to use PowerPoints during a sermon, but I just want to make sure that we're so clear and that we're all on the same page together that we all walk away thinking that we really and truly understand what the Bible says about this. So what I want you to do is just consider this week's sermon one very long, and by the way, that's another caveat. It's going to be a long sermon today, so buckle up. Uh, one very long introduction to next week's sermon where I'm actually going to spend time expositing the verses we just read. But this week, I'm just going to have to deal with the issue of slavery in the Bible and what the Bible teaches about it. Now, the next thing we need to talk about before we really dive into the, to the lesson itself is 
um, I realize that I bring my American baggage with me when I read the Bible, okay? Now, the fact that I know that is helpful. That means that it'll be easier for me to work against my own lack of objectivity, my own biases. But I realize that as an American who lives in a country where everyone agrees that slavery is evil, wrong, bad, heinous, you know, as Sam Harris says, in our civilized world, we agree that it's an abomination. I realize that I could approach the Bible and I could want it to be the case that the Bible condemns slavery. And I can just make it say what I want it to say. You know that. All over this country, all over the world today, there are people who are preaching the Bible who aren't actually going to preach the Bible. They're just going to make it say what they want it to say. So I recognize that that's a risk in teaching this lesson. So what I want you to know is, is that the very first time I set out to study this question of slavery in the Bible, which is not this week, I, I committed myself to taking the Bible at its word, regardless of what it said, even if it led me to a really uncomfortable place. I committed that even if I read this Bible and I find out that it says somehow, some way, some form of slavery is okay, I'm going to accept God's word and I'm not going to stand in judgment over God's word. It was not comfortable to, to come to that conclusion, to, to say, okay, this is how I'm going to approach it. But now I can tell you, after having studied this on multiple occasions, over the course of several years, from several different angles, con considering people on all the different sides of debates and arguments, believe it or not, there are some people who argue that the Bible is pro-slavery. And with passages like the one we read today, you can see how they might kind of get there. But I can tell you that I'm standing up here as someone who has to give an account to God for what I say about his word to his people, that I 100% firmly believe that the Bible is opposed to slavery. I think that the Bible considers slavery an abomination. But I would have been willing to accept it if it didn't. Now, here's, here's how we're going to do this. We're going we're to do two things this morning and one thing next week. This week, we're going to look at three different kinds of slavery or three different systems that kind of, in our English language, have fallen under the word slavery. Then we're going to look at how the gospel abolishes slavery. And then next week, we're going to look at the text and masters and slaves in the biblical times, how they're supposed to relate to each other, and how that authority relationship, because remember, we're in a, a string of passages where Paul is taking the gospel and he's applying it to different spheres of authority. We're going to see how this, in the ancient world, authority relationship between a master and a slave can either adorn the gospel or take away from it. It can decorate the gospel or decimate the gospel. That's what we're going to look at next week. But for this week, let's get started. Let's talk about uh, what is often referred to as the Hebrew or the Israelite system of slavery. So the first thing you need to know is that um, the vast majority of English Bibles prior to a, not that long ago didn't really translate the word ebed, the Hebrew word ebed, as slave. They translated it as manservant or woman servant or, or bondservant. In most other languages outside of English, ebed is not translated as slave in the Old Testament. And there's a reason for it. The reason is because bondservant is probably more accurate. Here's a definition of bond service. It is bonded service, that is, you're, you're committed to it, you can't get out of it, at least for a time, with a lowered status for a limited time and with certain protections. Okay? 
bonded service with a lower status. So, you know, it, we'll, we'll talk about that lower status when we talk about how you get to be a bond service, a servant, for a limited time and with certain protection. So you can already see that this definition of Hebrew or Israelite slavery, which is probably better called bond service, that doesn't sound like the definition of slavery, right? We're going to compare to what a real definition of slavery is. So here's the explanation. Voluntary slavery or bond service arises when a person or arose in ancient Israel, when a person becomes so poor that they cannot make a living, cannot provide for themselves, and sell themselves into a relationship with a person who has money. Now I have a little asterisk there because I hope you realize that that's what all of us do with our employers, okay? That is our situation. Sometimes it means that we live in our employer's household. And you should know that in many countries in the world, that's still the case today. People who are very poor, they don't have any money, they go and they, they become a servant in the household of a wealthy person who can take care of them, okay? Now, in the case of voluntary slavery in the Bible, there was also a lot of debt involved. It was debt-based. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But it says, and can provide for the poor person. The Hebrew word for this is ebed, often translated as slave, but in English, more or or, apparently we got a slide issue there, more accurately translated as bond servant. Okay, so we see what's happening there. That is bond servitude that you see uh, legislated in the Old Testament in your Bibles. All right, next. In Israel, the, one main, the main way that someone became a slave, next slide, was through debt. But there are other ways. So the basis for slavery, the first basis that you can look at is crime or theft. Okay, so if you were to steal something from somebody and you couldn't pay it back, you would become their bond servant. Okay, uh, that, that involves that. Remember we talked about a limited status, a limited social status in our definition of bond servitude? Well, yeah, you're going to have a limited social status because you have to work for somebody because you stole from them. Okay, now just so you know, limited freedom and lowered social status is still practiced in our country here in America today. Any person who goes to jail or prison has their freedom restricted and they have a lower social status because of the crime that they have committed. Okay, next you have debt and poverty. Those are some scripture references you can go look at, look at if you want to read that more in depth. And then finally, you have captured in war. Okay, and this was actually a system of mercy. You know, Rather than uh, I go to war with you and your country, rather than killing every man, woman, and child in the land to make sure that they don't rise up against us, I'm going to bring you in and let you be a servant in our home. We still practice something similar to that today with POWs, but because of the nature of foreign wars, you know, in the ancient world, I fought a war with my neighbor, right? So the, uh, me letting them go so they could just come back and stab me with a sword a couple months later, not, not the best idea, right? We let POWs go now because most of the time that we're, the people we're fighting are pretty far away from us, okay? So these were the three basic categories or the, the, the bases that you would have for becoming a bond servant in ancient Israel. Now, you can see here that I say, it says that they're never kidnapped and it's not race-based. They're never kidnapped and it's not race-based, which leads us to the next slide. We're going to talk about the four basic uh, factors of bond servitude that made, that made bond servitude distinct in ancient Israel as opposed to the practice of slavery amongst the nations around Israel. You remember, God called Israel, he made them a people, and he says, you're going to be my people, a holy people, a distinct people. You're not going to look like all the other people around you. They're worshiping false gods. You're going to worship me. They're practicing sexual immorality. You're going to be pure and holy. They're practicing evil 
forms of barbaric slavery, you are not going to be like that. And here are four ways in which the people of Israel were distinct and holy in their practice of bond servitude as opposed to the nations around them and the ways that they practiced slavery in the ancient world. The first factor is that it wasn't permanent. It wasn't permanent. You see this here with the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is every seventh year, a bunch of stuff happened. One thing that did happen was that anybody who was in bond service in Israel had to be released from their servitude. So, Exodus 21.2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. Six, right? Why? Because the seventh year is the year of Jubilee, right? So he's going to serve you six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. So even if he still owes you money, even if he didn't work off all of his debt, in the seventh year, no matter what, he goes free. Why? Because bond servitude is a form of contracted labor. It's not owning someone. So no matter what happens in, seven year, your con- in the seventh year, your contract is up. Number two, next. <clears throat> uh, so, so this is how you would um, purchase freedom. Okay, so let's just read it. Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. And by the way, when it says sold there, I know, again, it makes you think about American slavery, people standing on slave blocks and stuff like that. This, think about this more like in terms of like a contract being transferred, okay? Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. If he grows rich... He may redeem himself. Whatever bond servitude was in ancient Israel, it made it, 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 the category existed for this person who was in bond servitude to become rich. He can redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. Now, real quick, do you see that there? The year that he sold himself, right? Okay. Uh, to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. Next slide. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. So there's that contracted hired worker language. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him. You see that? Whatever, whatever it meant to be a slave, an ebed in ancient Israel, it did not allow for masters to rule ruthlessly. Why? Because they're contracted workers. They're not a piece of property that you own. Okay, next. We see that slaves were afforded protection. Okay? Slaves were, not, slaves were afforded protection. So, Exodus 21, 26 through 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, uh, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. This is employee protection of the ancient world, right? You as the boss, just because this person is indebted to you, doesn't mean that you can just go beating them up whenever you feel like it. If you hit a slave and he like gets a tooth knocked out or he gets his eye damaged because you've been violent for him, your contract is negated. It's over. Any money he owes you, guess what? 
it went, it went bye-bye with that tooth that came flying out of his mouth. You can't just treat your slave violently like that. Okay, next. Exodus 21, 20 through 21. This is probably one of the most abused verses by people who are anti-Christianity and believe that the Bible supports slavery. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. So what that's saying is, uh, basically, listen, if you kill this slave, uh, we're going to do something about it. The justice is going to be served. That's actually an argument for Christianity. I, I, I don't understand. It seems like they're saying that, you know, and think about it, in the antebellum South, if you killed a slave, what could be done about it? Anything? Nothing. The sl- slave could not be avenged. Nothing would happen. A bondservant in ancient Israel, justice would be done. You killed a man, and now their blood is on your hands. But the next part is what gets people. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So what this, what this is interpreted to mean is that, oh, yeah, you can kind of do whatever you want to a slave as long as he doesn't die. But we just saw from the verses we read prior to this that you can't even knock out a slave's tooth or damage his eye. And those are just two examples that are basically meant to show you can't mistreat your slaves, okay? You can't physically abuse them. So that's not at all what this is saying when you take it into context with other verses that say similar things. And when it says for the slave is his money, what it means is there's that contract, right? You, you owe him something. You're in debt to him. So I think it's summarized well like this. What this verse is saying is that you cannot just kill your bondservant. If you think that you can take advantage of your bondservant because he's in debt to you and you can just treat him however you want, you're wrong. Justice will be served. But this verse also offers protection for the head of the household. If the bondservant survives, you cannot kill the head of the household. You can't come for the guy. If, if he beats up this guy who's your cousin who's a bondservant and he almost dies, you can't come and kill him now which is like a lot of Old Testament law, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that sort of thing. It was meant to, to equally dole out justice to both parties and to offer protection for both parties, okay? All right, uh, next. Uh, finally, we see another aspect of protection. Uh, basically, if you want to go back and read this, we don't have time for it this morning. If you want to go back and read it, Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11, you can see that not only does the Bible offer protection for slaves, but it offers special protection for people who were mo- most likely to be taken advantage of in the ancient world, and that was females, okay? Next. All right. Uh, we have another distinguishing mark here in that uh, Hebrew slaves or bond servants could not be bought and sold as property, Okay, it just didn't work like that. In the ancient world, there's something called the, the Law Code of Hammurabi. I don't expect anybody to have heard of it, but it was a document, or actually etched in stone, uh, but it was a document that said, hey, listen, if a slave escapes and you return him to us, we'll pay you. So, so give them back, okay? That was, that was the law of the land in a, in a part of the world right around the Israelites in the ancient Near East. It says, return a slave, we'll pay you, do, help us out. In contrast to that, we have this. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge this evil from among you, Right? So in America, in, in, in Britain, in the colonies, it was normal for, for slaves to be kidnapped. That was just part of it. 
In the Bible, this is expressly forbidden, and it call, it's called evil, and it says you must purge this evil. You must get it out of here. Next, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death. So how serious is the crime of kidnapping someone? Well, to be put to death was whenever you committed a serious sin in the Old Testament. You blasphemed the Lord. You were constantly rebellious against your parents. All these different things. Kidnapping someone in order to sell them into slavery is the exact same kind of thing, okay? Uh, man-stealing is what it's going to be called next. Next slide. Uh, and now we have in contrast to the law of Hammurabi, okay? So the law of Hammurabi from the pagan peoples who were not holy, give us uh, our slave back and we'll pay you. Here, Leviticus 25, 47 through 48. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Oh, that's not the slide I wanted. See, this is why I don't do slides. No, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I messed it up. All right, go to the next slide. Go to the next slide. There it is. Deuteronomy 23:15. Guys, if that's the only slide issue we have this morning, I'm doing pretty good. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Now, by the way, I think that this is referring to a slave that's escaped from outside of Israel and has come into Israel. It, it doesn't make any sense what they would be saying here uh, if it was somebody from within Israel, okay? If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Don't give them back. Don't be greedy. Don't go for reward it's doing injustice in order to get a little bit of money. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Instead, be a sanctuary for them, right? Whatever... Hebrew slavery was in the Old Testament, it is in the mind of God not compatible at all with oppression. So, rather than a reward for returning a slave, there is a penalty. There's an explicit command. Do not do this. Uh, you should know that this was... Uh, so, let me, let me caveat what I'm about to say here. I am not not in any way trying to at all excuse anything that any people who were professing to be Christians did in owning slaves in the South. Okay, everybody tracking? Some Christian slave owners in the South, especially in the later years when suffrage was, uh, not, not suffrage, when um, abolition was on the rise and when it was approaching, they, they took this verse and they said, okay, I can't eradicate slavery, but maybe I can buy that slave and keep them from going to that master down south where they're going to die and they can come and live with me and I will give them a sort of refuge. I will be their refuge city. I'm not saying that that was necessarily the right approach. I'm just letting you know that that is a way in which at least some Christian slave owners in the South thought about what they were doing. Okay, next. <clears throat> yep. So we're missing a slide here. Uh, that's probably my fault. 1 Timothy uh, 2.10. No, 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 that's right. No, I'm on the right page. Guys, again, I'm not a slide guy, okay? I'm a chart guy, not a slide guy. I want to make the point here that uh, not only should it be obvious that Hebrew slavery or bond servitude was distinct from the ancient world, but I think that they knew that they were distinct from the ancient world. They knew that they were holy as a people in the way that they practiced and the way that they, they practiced bond servitude and avoided slavery. And I get that from, from these verses here, which we already read, but I just want to point out, like, everyone in Israel knew that to, to kidnap someone and to sell them as a slave was evil. 
There's nobody in ancient Israel who would have seen a human being stolen and then sold into forced labor and would have thought, oh, God's fine with that. No, they thought it was evil because God told them it was evil, right? And then they said, get it out of here. Purge that evil from among you. If, some, if a person tries to take somebody, kidnap them and sell them as a slave, whoever that is, you need to kill them. And that's justice. Sam Harris quote, going back to that. God expects it to be normal for us to own slaves. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? If you look at the Bible, is that what the Bible's testimony is about the practice of slavery? Well, no, you can just tell that Mr. Harris hasn't spent much time reading his Bible. Okay, next. So I want to show that this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, but the same person who wrote Slaves, Obey Your Earthly Masters also wrote this in 1 Timothy pulling directly from the language of the Old Testament, which he knew front and back. We also know that the law is made not only for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. We get it, Paul. These people are bad. You're saying it as many ways as possible, over and over again. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. So as Paul is writing this letter and he's talking about all these people who are incredibly sinful, who are bringing the wrath of God upon themselves in a way that's self-evident to everyone who follows the Lord, you see he includes slave traders in that list. Does God expect it to be normal for us to keep slaves? No, the profession of slave trading is on the list, the short list of things that will send you to hell. So in summary, the slavery or the bond servitude practiced in the Old Testament is not even close to what we think of when we as Americans think about slavery. We think about antebellum, chattel, uh, race-based slavery. But the fact is, is that they're not the same thing at all. They're worlds apart. Finally, one more thing I want to show you. In uh, Next slide. Leviticus 25, 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are ebeds, or slaves, bondservants, okay? And then Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him. So whatever it means to be an ebed, a slave, a bondservant, it has to be something that's compatible with being a son, right? Okay. Uh, next, we're going to talk about American slavery, antebellum, race-based chattel slavery. In contrast to everything we just saw in Hebrew slavery, American slavery was one, race-based, right? The, the number of the melanin count in your skin would qualify you, or the purity of your blood. I should have used air quotes around that. It involved the evil practice of man-stealing, which we just talked about. Incidentally, the vast majority of the man-stealing was actually from different tribes on the coast of West Africa conquering and killing their own kinsmen, and then they would steal and then they would sell. And, and, and so blood is on everybody's hands. Everyone is complicit. It was permanent, right? So there was no year of jubilee. There's no buying you out of slavery. You know, if the only way for somebody to be freed from slavery in the antebellum South was if the master felt like it, and you can imagine that that almost never happened. And uh, it treated humans as property, not as image bearers of God. So you can see in the practice of Hebrew bond servitude that the people who are in service, they are still treated like they have the image of God. 
that they have value, dignity, and respect, and that's inherent in them. In American slavery, there is no concept of that. You're three-fifths a human being. I can do with you whatever I want. I can treat you in the same way I might treat a pot of flowers. You know, I can knock you over and break you if I so choose because I own you. Uh, I genuinely believe that the Civil War in America, which cost over 600,000 lives in the North and the South, uh, was the judgment of God on this nation for allowing slavery into our land. People tend to think that in the Christian West there's this 2,000-year chain of unbroken history wherein white people have owned other people as slaves. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is, is that Christianity undermined and then destroyed slavery uh, from a very early age, starting with Justinian, in fact, Legally, things began to change. This, this Christian emperor, he changed the laws so that it would be legal to manumit or free slaves in, in the Roman Empire. Um, and then by the time you get to the high Middle Ages, okay, slavery was basically eradicated in Christian Europe. I mean, it was just gone. It was non-existent. The only places where it still kind of remained was like Spain and Portugal and stuff like that. And it only was in the parts of those lands that were touched by Islam which does have an unbroken chain of practicing slavery even up to our very own day. I'm not trying to take a pot shot at Islam here. If I were, it would be super easy. I'm just genuinely telling you the history, okay? In the history of Christian, Christian Europe in the West for the last 2,000 years, the only places where slavery still kind of barely hung on by a thread was wherever Islam had come in and made an impact, not Christianity. Okay. As the light of Christianity slowly overcame the darkness of paganism through the Roman Empire and then afterwards, sla slavery began to wither away and die. And so when European countries began to re-embrace slavery, you know, like when, when Britain started going, oh yeah, we'll have some slaves and we'll send them out to the West Indies, and when Spain started, you know, doing that whole thing, when that happened, there was a tremendous uproar in Christian Europe. And they started passing laws saying, you can't bring that stuff here. We're not going to have slaves here. We don't believe in that. Unfortunately, a lot of nations, because of greed, accepted slavery in some form, but as long as it wasn't on their native soil, they accepted it as long as you had the slaves over there. And that's really how slaves came to be in America, right? The British Empire was greedy for gain. It wasn't in there in their homeland. Nobody had to look at the injustice that was taking place before their eyes every day. And so... And they were making a lot of money, and so they allowed it to happen. Now, the point that I'm trying to drive home here is this. Uh, slavery coming back to life in the West was a process of re-paganization. It is not something that was normal or new for us as Christians in the West. It was a process of re-paganization. As if the gospel came to life and then destroyed the, the, the evil fabric of, of Roman Empire society, and then, and then we were good, and then, and then it came back in. The darkness crept back in. Okay, next we're going to look at uh, Roman slavery. Uh, because of some of the language in the New Testament, like what we see here, it is not uncommon for some preachers and teachers to try to make the argument that slavery in the Roman world was not really as bad as slavery in America. And they're wrong, okay? It was just as bad. 
It was just as terrible. It was just as barbarous. The only real difference between Roman slavery, I mean, there's a, there's, there are more differences than this, but it's, it's not by much. The only real difference is that slavery in the, in, in the Roman world was not race-based. They didn't even have a concept of race, okay? Um, Joe Rigney says this, both Roman and New World slavery denied many legal protections to slaves. Both were filled with brutality and violence inflicted upon slaves. So I want to show you guys a chart real quick. You guys know I'm a chart guy, so I got you, okay? Let's, let's look at this next chart. Oh, did the chart, can, can you go back? Ah, there it is. So slavery conditions, here's a comparison. Now, if you look at the right two columns, you're going to see that the Roman system of slavery and the new world system of slavery are essentially the same thing, right? Except for in the new world, we let our slaves take a Sabbath, okay? But there was no holidays. There was not enough food. There was no legal redress. All the stuff we talked before about protection and all that stuff, there was none of that. There was no sexual protection. You know, you could do whatever you wanted with a slave in ancient Rome, male or female, and nobody could tell you anything about it because they were your property. Could they be kidnapped? Yes, they could. Were they kept in chains? Yes, Paul talk, you know, talks about, uh, when he uses the, the imagery of slavery, he talks about being in chains. Torture and physical abuse, all were permissible under Roman and New World law. But if you look in contrast to that, and you look at Old Testament bond servitude, they were granted holidays, they had enough food, they had legal redress, they had sexual protection, they could not be kidnapped, they could not be kept in chains, they could not be tortured, and they could not be abused in any way. Do you see the stark contrast? Right? I mean, first of all, the similarity between Roman and New World slavery, we just have to admit it's the same thing. But then the Old Testament system of slavery, you can see it's not even slavery at all. It's something else entirely different. And for that reason, Peter Williams, uh, a scholar from Oxford, Tyndall House, he is like, he's, he is petitioning that we just do away with that word in the Old Testament and replace it with bond servitude because it makes more sense. Okay. My point is, is that the reality that slavery in Rome was brutal was not lost on Paul. There's a reason why Paul in 1 Timothy 10, which we already looked at, there's a reason why he lists slavery as part of the unrighteous and the unholy. There's a reason why when Paul talks about slavery, he calls it a yoke because he understands it to be burdensome. He doesn't understand it to be normal and just part of how God has designed the world to work with its authority structures. So, in light of this history, it's natural to wonder, well, man, Paul, you're writing the Bible, you know, God's inspiring you. Peter, why don't you just write and say, hey, slaves, rise up, rebel against your masters. Why doesn't he just say, masters, release all your slaves, you're Christians now. This is not good, this is bad. Release all your Christians. And I think that questions like that are natural. Uh, I've asked them myself. But like most matters of history and ethics, the more you dig, the more you know, you come to find out that it's, it's actually not that simple. History is actually quite complicated. What we look back on and say, well, why didn't you just do this? Well, it's not that easy. If you've ever been someone's boss or supervisor and you have to make a decision and somebody underneath you complains about the decision, they're like, oh, the boss is so stupid. Why didn't he just do this? Everyone knows this is the best decision. But you as a boss and supervisor, you probably know about five other factors that went into making that decision that made it not quite so simple as your employee might have thought. So 
Let's, let's look at these in turn. Let's look at the concept of rebellion. Slave rebellions did take place in the ancient world, but they took place very infrequently. Why? Well, because of the price of failing. It was severe, and you should know that they did fail every time. So you probably heard the name Spartacus, right? It sounds ancient. It sounds Roman. You probably don't really know much more about him than that. You know, he's this, he, he was a gladiator slave, and once he escaped and got his freedom, he led a slave rebellion against Rome around the year 73 B.C. Now, this guy Crassus, he was a governor in Rome at the time. He, with his own money, raised up an army in about two years and went out and crushed this slave rebellion. I mean, just absolutely annihilated them. In order to celebrate his victory, uh, they gave him a triumph parade along the Appian Way. You guys know the Appian Way. You go down to the 405. Okay, the Appian Way. And along the road of his, his victory march, there were 6,000 crosses. And each one of these 6,000 crosses, there was a slave hanging. Now, the message of this was meant to be clear. This is how Rome deals with threats to their interests. We will destroy you, and we will make you die and suffer in the most terrible way imaginable. I think, you know, Paul knows this. That's one of the reasons why he doesn't say, just rise up and rebel. Well, one, it's not going to work. And two, if it does, the price that you're going to pay is going to be quite severe. Maybe you could live as a, as, a, as a Christian and as a slave, and maybe you can do some eternal good while you're still here. Okay, number two, regarding manumission or the freeing of slaves. Um, there's no reason that anyone here would need to be an expert on, uh, or even be familiar with the particulars of Greco-Roman slave law. But if you were, you would know that freeing a slave in the Roman Empire was pretty tricky business, okay? Uh, we think that Paul could just say, hey, slave owners, release, release your slaves. And they'd be like, okay, Paul, you're an apostle. I'll listen to you. But that's actually not the way things work. You should know that 60% scholars debate, but roughly 60% of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. Now, it seems like it would not be in the interest of the rulers of Roman society to make it easy to free slaves. And if you thought that, you would be right. It, was, it would be very risky to make it easy to free slaves when 60% of your population is composed of slaves. Think about the economic uh, and, and all these socio-culture factors that are going in there, that are going on there. If, if you were to make it easy to free slaves, the Romans would risk losing their power pretty easily. Now you think, ah, big deal, you know, have them lose their power. But to the Romans, it really mattered. So they had, they had laws on the books that limited manumission of slaves. So I'm not going to get into all the technicals of it, but basically the more slaves you owned, the more difficult it would be to manumit and proportionally the less you could ever free. So like if you owned three slaves, you could release two. If you owned 10, you could release five. But even then they had to be spread out. If you owned like 60 or 100, you could only release like five or six. Okay, so it was meant to be, it was legally difficult and it was meant to be, designed to be legally difficult to release slaves in the ancient world. You also have to take into account the, just the realities, the harsh realities of what it means to go from being a slave in Rome, where even if you're under harsh conditions you're cared for, to going out into the Roman economy, 
in the Roman world, which was quite cruel, they would leave babies out to die, you know. For Paul to say, yeah, just go seek your freedom. Well, it could be that as soon as they became free, they would, you know, they would suffer tremendously. That doesn't mean that Paul doesn't want them to seek their freedom. Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, Right? So like, even though it would be hard out there, it would still be better to live a hard life as a free man than uh, an easier life as a slave. Paul understands that reality. But he also knows that especially if you have a Christian master, your life could go well. It could go better for you. Because he says stuff like this in Colossians 4. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. So imagine that you're a Christian slave and you have a Christian master and you have this word from the Lord, treat your slaves with fairness. Give them what is right. Would you rather stay in your home with your Christian master or would you rather go out into the Roman Empire where you might die on the side of the road somewhere? All of these factors are in Paul's mind as he's writing. And it just shows us. I'm not saying that I've answered every question that anyone might have about how Paul interacts with slavery in Rome. What I'm trying to show you is that things aren't as simple as they appear to be from 2,000 years in the future. We have to remember also that the idea of slavery, excuse me, that the idea that slavery could have been eradicated was not even on Paul's radar. Paul would have never had that idea. If you would have told him that, it would have been laughable. Every culture in the world at that time practiced slavery. The Roman Empire was the strongest empire in the world, and it seems like they were not going to slow down at any time soon. Anytime anybody ever rebelled against the Romans, they were crushed immediately. There was no system of democratic processes wherein you can move the levers of the democratic process in order to enact justice and do good for your nation. That didn't exist. In those days, there was Caesar and there was the Senate. And that's it. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer tried to assassinate Hitler in order to bring down the Third Reich. Well, in order for Paul or anyone in the ancient world, to single-handedly bring down, bring down the Roman slavery system, you would have had to kill the, the Caesar and the Senate at the same time. And then you also would have had to make sure that whoever came to power after them agreed with you about slavery. So you can see that that would just not happen, right? It's just not a possibility. On top of that, you have to remember that Paul did not view himself as a minister of justice. Paul viewed himself as a minister of the gospel, and a gospel that does lead to justice, but he didn't say he's an ambassador of justice in doing good in society. He's an ambassador of heaven, preaching a message of reconciliation, be reconciled back to God. His goal was not political reform, but the salvation of souls. But I think that Paul also understood the reality that the gospel changes people and people change the world. Now that's a slower process. It is terrifyingly slow for the people who are experiencing injustice in the moment. And we have to be honest about that. But that's the way that God chose to do things. Now, I'm sure that if we could sit down with Paul in front of us today and say, hey, Paul, this is how uh, the American system of government works, okay? We got three branches. They all work together. And we as citizens, we have real power to elicit change. Sometimes for our good, think about Civil Rights Act. Sometimes for our bad, think about Ol Olbergfeld in the gay marriage decision, okay? 
But Paul, this is our American system of government. Do you think we should use it in order to bring about just ends? I'm sure Paul would say, yeah, sure, absolutely. But don't forget, your main purpose here is not to do justice. It's to preach the gospel and, and also adorn the gospel with justice. Okay. So now we have the question. So we see how complicated it was. Incredibly complicated. Paul couldn't have, probably would never even thought have, seeking political reform in order to eradicate slavery. Does that, mean that, does that mean that God was just okay with Roman slavery as it existed in the ancient world? Was he, was he just happy with the status quo there? Well, I think the answer to that is also no. I mean, you, you look everywhere in Scripture and you see that God is always the champion of the oppressed. Even look at Job 31 real quick. Look at Job 31. Next slide. Here, Job is talking about uh, bondservants in his home, okay? And he says this, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Here you see Job articulating a theology of the Imago Dei. He's saying, that servant and me, we both have the image of God. And God is the God of justice. And if I treat him poorly, he's going to come and stand in and seek justice on his behalf at my cost. So God is definitely concerned with injustice and suffering and slavery. 100%. But here's the thing. God did dismantle slavery in Rome. God undid slavery in the Roman Empire and consequently in in other parts of the world. I would make the argument that the reason why slavery is non-existent today in almost every part of the world is because of the seed of the gospel that was planted in Rome 2,000 years ago, okay? But the way that he did it was so different than the way that we would do it if we planned it in our own wisdom, right? You think about the Jews, their expectations for the Messiah, They thought the Messiah was going to be this mighty warrior king who was going to come and through force and violence overthrow the evil oppression of Rome and usher in this new kingdom of peace. Instead of a warrior king, however, they got a suffering servant. If we were to design the way that God would overthrow the evil system of Roman slavery, we would think that it would involve armies and a whole lot of money and a whole lot of political action and a whole lot of protests. But that's not what God did at all. What he did was, is he took this tiny seed of the gospel and he planted it inside the dead tree of Rome. And then when that tree grew up and came to life, it destroyed its host. You know, Paul talks about how a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Well, that's what God did to Rome. He took a little bit of gospel leaven. He dropped a pinch of it in the batch of dough that was the Roman Empire. And within a few centuries, that entire batch of dough had been completely overcome with that same leaven. Now, I think Joe Rigney summarizes it well when he says this. Next slide. The church is planted within a pagan society as an alternative social organism. So a society within a society, a kingdom within a kingdom, with the goal that the church will gradually transform society as people come to know Jesus and the nations are discipled. The best way to eradicate slavery was to tell everybody about Jesus. It's a slower process, but it is the best process. 
in this new society that was being seeded all over the Roman Empire, we see the values and the systems of Rome being cast aside and replaced by values like this. Next slide. <clears throat> there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Scandalous. Scandalous to say that. Neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how the society of the church existing within the larger society of Rome is supposed to think of themselves. I hope you understand how scandalous it would have been to not only believe these things and write these things, but to also practice these things. To, to as a church, as a society, within the larger society, actually comport yourself and behave like you're not a master and you're not a slave. When you come together to worship the Lord on the day that Christ resurrected from the grave and the master kisses the slave on the cheek and says, hello, brother, do you understand how revolutionary that was? We, we talk about, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's something like me and other guys in the church joke about, oh, greet him with a holy kiss. You know, we're guys, we don't kiss each other, right? But it was... It was revolutionary for Paul to say, hey, you Jew, you Gentile, your family, you need to act like it. One of the easiest ways that you can do that on a consistent basis is just by kissing each other when you come in like family does. You slave, you master, greet one another like brothers, not like slaves and masters. <clears throat> you remember the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal, he runs off you know, embarrasses his father, takes all the money, lives in grievous sin, comes back. He knows he's unworthy. He knows he's not, shouldn't be treated as family. So he says, okay, I'm going to go to my dad and I'm going to say, dad, I don't deserve to be your son. Treat me like a servant. But when the dad sees him from afar off, he runs to him and he wraps his arms around him and what does he do? He kisses him. The dad says, no, you're part of my family. And the kiss is the sign of that. And that's exactly the point that Paul is trying to drive home when he commands Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. You are family. Somebody said it like this. The gospel doesn't overthrow, it undermines. The gospel doesn't tell us to kill slave masters, it urges us to try and convert them. The gospel takes slaves and masters and makes them family. And so we read in Colossians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew. Here in the church, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. Here in this church, which is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, in this society, in this morning, there is not slave and free, but there is Christ who is all in all. That is the vision that Paul has for eradicating slavery. That is God's plan. And there's an example of this very phenomenon that takes place in the book of Philemon. Turn with me real quick to the book of Philemon. If you have trouble finding it, it's right after Titus, right before Hebrews. Philemon, starting in verse 10. So, a little bit of background. You have Philemon. He's a Christian. He, he owns slaves. Who knows? Maybe he's recently converted, likely through the ministry of Paul. And he has a slave, Onesimus. 
Starting in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So likely what happened here is that Philemon wanted to support Paul while he was in prison. And in order to do that, he sent him care packages and stuff like that and money. And he sent it through his slave, Onesimus. And as Onesimus arrives to Paul, Paul does what Paul always does. He says, oh, okay, I'm going to convert you. All right, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And so now Paul says, hey, I'm sending him back to you. Then he says in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you. Well, how was he useless? Well, he was probably a, a rebellious slave. He was probably not a good slave. But he says, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Why? Well, because he's a Christian. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now you'll notice there that Paul does not tell Philemon to manumit Onesimus. He does not tell Philemon to free Onesimus. He doesn't say, hey, he's a Christian now, let him go. Maybe for some of the legal reasons we talked about earlier, I don't know, but I know that there's at least one reason why he doesn't say that. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me, really, so that he would be with me and not actually be functioning as a slave, right? I would be glad to keep him as, with me as a brother in Christ in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. This is incredible. Paul could have exercised apostolic authority. He could have said, hey, listen, this dude's a Christian now. You need to let him go. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, Philemon, I want you to want to do the right thing. I want you to want to let him go. Think about 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, you need to excommunicate this guy who's in sexual sin. He doesn't say, I've excommunicated him and now you will uh, obey. You will do as I've said. No. He says, you need to put this sinful brother out from among you. I want you to want to have holiness in the church and practice church discipline. The same thing Paul is saying here to Philemon. I want you to want to view Onesimus as your brother, not as a slave. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you. Later on in the letter, Paul basically says, and I trust that you will do what I've asked. Right? Like, I, like, I'm not going to tell you, but I trust that you're going to do the right thing here. I think Paul expects something to change between Philemon and Onesimus, even if he can't release him for legal reasons, he can treat him like a brother. And here's the thing about treating someone like a brother. You can't treat him like a slave at the same time. But more than that, Paul goes on in verse 17. And he says, I am your partner. Receive him as you would receive me. So now, they're not only brothers, but they're also partners in the gospel. They are on the same level because of what Jesus has done. Do you see the wisdom of God in this? It's no surprise to me that Mr. Harris, as he reads the Bible, doesn't see this because his, his mind has been blinded to the wisdom of God and the wisdom of heaven by the God of this world, Satan. He has accepted the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness to God. He has not taken a very careful reading of the Bible at all. That's why I stand before you and I tell you with 100% certainty that I believe that God is truly opposed to slavery. 
Joe Rigney summarizes it well with these words. Next slide. Paul offers a strategy of intentional gradualism to transform Roman society. Leaven the lump of society by encouraging slaves to serve well and masters to rule well, while also creating within the Roman Empire an alternative society, the household of the living God. In this household, everyone is family. And this strikes at the root of the Greco-Roman social order in a gradual, reformational way rather than a violent, revolutionary way. We also have to remember that we have a sympathetic high priest. Those people who were suffering at the hands of slavery in ancient Rome, the slaves who were suffering here in America, in the South, as we practiced our evil practices, they did not have a God who could not understand their experience and what they were going through. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, please. It's right after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. In reference to Jesus Christ, Paul says that, that, that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now again, the English translators have translated that word doulos as servant because to translate it as slave conjures up nasty images in our mind. But the word there is slave. Not the good kind of Hebrew slave, but the bad slave. Doulos. Christ took on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Think about that. God became a slave. He cares so much about the suffering of the oppressed peoples of the world that he came down and actually became one of them so that he could be their sympathetic high priest. And we see this picture which Amber read in John 13 earlier where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. We see Jesus getting down and wrapping himself up with a towel and we think, yeah, you know, he's going to clean. He wraps himself up with a towel. No. What he was doing there was taking on the garb, the dress of a slave when the slave was about to do slave service in the house. So Jesus, as he's standing there with his disciples that he's Lord of, he condescends and becomes a slave to them, dresses up like a slave to drive home the point, and then proceeds to wash their feet. That's the reason why Peter's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. He's saying, you're not a slave, you're our master. I'm not going to let you do that. But Jesus says, you don't understand. If you don't let me be a slave to you, you can never come and and be my servant in the kingdom of God. But you should know that Jesus in John 13, that wasn't just like a cute little uh, role-playing scenario for him. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna dress up like a slave and wash some nasty feet, and then that's kind of, yeah, that's that's how I'm gonna be a slave. No, if you keep reading in, in Philippians 2, it says that, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, do you remember what we said about crosses earlier? There were only a couple of people who died. It's not like every person who was killed by the state in ancient Rome was killed on a cross. It was reserved for a very select few people. Extreme political dissidents, somebody who really upset the emperor or the governor and stuff like that. 
or slaves. 6,000 slaves along the road, all of them crucified that way. That's the reason why it was so shameful for Jesus to die that way. He was dying a slave's death. And if you would have read this and with this knowledge in mind of the ancient world, and if you would have spoke Greek and read it in the original Greek, you would read it and you would say, okay, Jesus, who was God, he came down and he took on the form of a slave, and then he humbled himself by dying the death of a slave. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, and he cares. And through his becoming a slave, he has freed us from our slavery. He entered into bondage in order to grant us freedom. Friends, don't you know that everyone is a slave to something? Don't you understand that everyone is a slave to someone or some system? Paul says it like this in Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Every person in this room, every person in this world, is either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus Christ. Christ didn't come to grant us freedom. He came to grant us freedom from sin. And he calls us to be his slaves. He calls us to be his servants. I can tell you I've been following the Lord now since I was 18 years old. And he has been a good father to me. But he's also been a good master. And he is my master. He is my Lord. I was talking with a guy that I was trying to share the gospel with this week at Chick-fil-A, and he kept on using very despotic language to talk about God. And I tried to help him understand. In the Bible, you have to understand that because God is so big and we're so small, he relates to us in these different ways. Yes, he is our Lord and master, but he's also our father. I got to tell you, as my Lord and master, he has been as kind to me as a father. Because of that, like many slaves of the ancient world, I don't want to be free. I don't want him to let me go. I don't want him to send me back out into the world. I want to remain with him. I want him to love me and to care for me and provide for me and keep me as a part of his household because he's purchased me at such a great cost. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This morning, every single one of us has to make a decision. Not serving is not an option. So choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word is good. It's full of wisdom and life and light. And it brings joy to us, Father. We thank you that your word is not so easily understood that we can naturally grasp everything in it, but we thank you also that you've given us your spirit, which empowers us to see and to understand the depth and the complexity of your wisdom. And now, Lord, we pray that you would help some of what we learned here this morning remain with us as we go back out into the world, as we seek to give a response to those who question our faith, as we offer the, a reason for the hope that's within us, we pray that you would help us to be confident that your word, which expresses your character, is full of good moral truth from heaven. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. All glory be to Christ.